Support for this show comes from Connected Families. If you're a mom of kids that fight, let me direct you to my favorite resource, Jim and Lynn Jackson. They've been on the show before, and they are offering until June 30th. You can sign up over at godcentermom.com backslash siblings for their online sibling conflict course. It's five sessions. Each session is about 30 minutes. You can do it with your spouse, and you can get on the same page and learn as a family the peace process. Our family's done it. It's only $44. I would highly recommend it. Again, go to godcentermom.com backslash siblings for more information. Every human being has a faith journey and some view of God that they hold along the way. And that can shift and change as we go through different circumstances and experiences. Well, my guest today, Mo Isom, she was an accomplished soccer player, all-star, the only female to try out for a college football team. And she's going to share her testimony today of moving from an eating disorder, then thinking she understood how things worked with God until the devastation and sadness of her father's suicide, which led her to running far from God until he finally got her attention in a horrific car accident. And while she was hanging upside down from a Jeep, she grasped the depth of God's grace for her. God began to just download the realities of the depths of the gospel into my heart, personalize it to me, begin to paint the picture of Christ taking the cross, not just to forgive me of my sins, but that he had to take the cross because of my sins. It was my sins that hung him there. And yet still he chose to stay and he hung on that cross and he took that tomb and he rose still to prove that he was greater than death. He was greater than our death, our loss, our pain, greater than our running, greater than the sin we've lived in, greater than the pain and affliction that he brings dead things to life. And what he pressed on my heart was that I needed to choose. Was I going to continue to allow the haphazard winds of life to maybe blow my broken pieces back together? Or was I going to trust him as the master artist, the designer of my soul, the one who first knit me together in my mother's womb? Was I going to trust him to rebuild me into a new creation? Hold on tight, y'all. You're in for a good conversation. So let's get right to it. Here we go. Hey, Mo, welcome to the God Center Mom podcast. Thank you. I am excited to be with you today. This is an honor. Well, I wish it was in person because you're really fun to hang out with. But (laughs) this is the second best thing. We can have a chat uh, via the interworlds of the web. Um, So there's so much I could say about you. But before we get into talking about your story, would you introduce everybody to your family? Yes, I, that would be my greatest honor because okay, they are, they're my greatest blessing. My husband, first off, since his love to you, he was real as well with us. And, um, his name is Jeremiah and he is, um, he's just my best friend. I, I love him a whole lot. We got married about two and a half years ago. Um, and then have a 17-month-old daughter. Her name is Auden, Auden Noel, and are halfway along with our second already. So we just waste no time. <laughs> Y'all get things done. You yes, are go-getters. You are go-getters. Baby said, this is great. Let's have another baby. <laughs> but no, he's um, he's amazing. He works at the hospital near us um, doing uh, not so much physical therapy, but part of the restrengthening process. He works in a big gym associated with the hospital and he's 
just so relational and works with clients with all different types of needs and disabilities and, you know, age related stuff. And he's amazing at what he does um, and, and really uses that as his mission field. So it's an honor to be his wife. And then it's an honor to be mommy to our little daughter who is just a giant and I love everything about it. <laughs> you can't see this in your podcast, but I am six foot one. My husband is six foot five and our 17 month old daughter is almost three feet tall already. <laughs> she, I mean, it's, it's when you see Mo and Jeremiah together, they are, they're just this like force y'all are, but then such sweet and tender hearts. Um, I, I, I loved traveling with you and getting to, it's interesting to see how each person interacts with yeah. the trip, right? So just seeing y'all really diving in, wanting to know more about Israel and about Jesus and about the cultural side, um, and then growing spiritually and crying together. It's all so sweet, um, to see. And I just fell in love with you and your husband. I didn't fall in love with your husband, you with your husband, <laughs> This is me confessing right now. I'm in love with your husband. No, um, just watching the two of you together is so cute. You know, newlyweds, always good to be around newlyweds. Uh, and then you and I, uh, at one dinner, I got to hear more of your story. And I just really want you to share that story here with listeners if they aren't familiar with it already. Um, you've written about it in your book, Wreck, your, Wreck My Life. But could you just share, like, where would you start in this journey the under uh, the uh, subtitle is journeying from broken to bolt. So where did that brokenness start? Yeah. Um, you know, that really began for me in a place that on the surface doesn't look broken at all. Hmm. Uh, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up, you know, with, with two professing believers of parents and, you know, we're in church every Sunday and Bible study and FCA and, um, you know, plugged in, but, but, the brokenness that was really on the surface of under the surface of, of all of that was, um, just sort of, I, I call it in my book, buying into wrecked religion. It was just sort of a faith by inheritance to me. Mm. I was a Christian because my parents were Christians. You know, I was going to church and getting my Jesus points is what I called them because it was sort of required of me, you know, and I saw that other people like clearly got this whole faith thing on a different level or, you know, practice it on a different level. But to me, I just thought they were more enthusiastic. I didn't, I didn't actually understand that it was anything more than like God in a box on Sunday and church on a checklist and wearing a cross on my necklace and working really hard to be a good person. Mm-hmm. So I had all the tools right there to, you know, have a vibrant walk with Christ, but I was young and I was stubborn and it just, um, it honestly just wasn't all that interesting to me. That sounds terrible, but it just, it seemed mundane. You know, I grew up in the Bible belt. I'm in Atlanta and, um, it's just common. It's just normal, uh, that you would would be in church and you would be a a Christian quote unquote. So Mm -hmm. it was just a generic, very vanilla faith walk for me. And, um, I didn't see why or how God was supposed to really apply to the other six days of my week. Um, so I, I knew a lot about God, but I didn't truly know God. And I could have told you a lot about scripture, but my heart never beat for scripture. Like I, I you know, it, it's just different. So it began there. And you know, that because of that, when we're not rooted on the rock of our identity, of our worth of, you know, all the things that are so valuable to be sewn into us from an early age, um, 
it's just so easy in that middle school, high school time to struggle with our identity, especially as young women. And so, you know, a, a, a shallow faith led to identity struggles, which led to very much allowing the lies of the enemy to penetrate my heart and shape my thoughts. And that really led me into a pretty vicious eating disorder um, where, you know, sure, there's surface level stuff about wanting to be skinnier, wanting to fit in more socially, you know, wanting to be as beautiful as the world sort of projects what the image of beauty is. But really eating disorders are much deeper spiritual issues of control. And I just needed something to be in control of. I am a type A personality and, you know, uh, was a standout athlete and, um, found a lot of my identity and worth in that. So when things didn't go my way there, it just felt like everything was out of control. Mm -hmm. You know, and I was a good, I was a good student, but you know, if I struggled or wasn't perfect there and it didn't go my way, it felt like everything was out of control. So I just desperately longed for something that I could consistently control. And that became what I put in and what I forced out of my own body. And, um, I just really struggled in that for really almost all of high school for, for three and a half years, I kept this secret sin really that just grew out of not even knowing who I was or whose I was. And, um, it owned a lot of me and I was just very sick. And, um, you know, on the surface, the world praises things. It's so odd. The world is like the enemy's greatest cheerleader. (laughs) We Mm -hmm. can be in our places, but if things look good, then the world has a pat on the back for us. You know, I, I was skinnier and I was, you know, um, achieving different things that, that I wanted to, but no one really saw how sick I was inside. And so anyways, I moved through that for a while and came across a piece of scripture that was simple. And I couldn't have told you the context. I couldn't have told you the book of the Bible. It's just amazing how God sort of plants things in our lives, but it just said, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And I was all set to transition out of high school a semester early and to go to LSU, Louisiana State University, on a full soccer scholarship. But, you know, I just saw this opportunity for transition and and change into college. And I came across that scripture, and I didn't know anything about it other than it was the salve that my soul needed at the time. I was so tired, Mm. so weary, so burdened, so sick of faking fine and like harboring this issue that really was affecting my body very deeply. Were you struggling like with being such a great athlete and then you're not feeding your body well? Did you ever struggle on the field like to keep up or you were still keeping up and you know, and and struggling. Mm -hmm. It it started as anorexia. Mm -hmm. Um, I quickly realized I actually, you know, I needed some fuel to play the sport that I was playing. I I couldn't quite pull off not eating at all. Um, and, and so it evolved into bulimia, Mm. um, binging and purging, but then even still the enemy meets us there and convinces us it's not enough. We're not good enough. We're not doing enough. We could do more. We could have more control. And so it it kind of evolved into a combination of the two issues where there were days where I would eat as little as an apple and be making myself purge nine, 10 times a day. I mean, there was just nothing even coming up, but, Mm. but, you know, stomach acid really. And it was just becoming so obsessive. I then started turning to diet pills, energy pills, anything that was just sort of drugstore accessible that could give me the energy I needed to compete, um, 
I, I started abusing and it was just, it was just a very unhealthy, sick cycle because, because I was still an athlete, because I was still needing to compete at a high level, I would, you know, harm my body, go without for days and days and then purge anything and everything I could find, you know, and, and then feel so shameful, so guilty, so disgusting. And I'm sorry, binge anything and everything I could find and Mm -hmm. then feel, you know, so filthy. I'd go purge it all and feel guilty for the next several days. And so hardly feed myself. And it was Mm -hmm. just this really twisted cycle. I started logging every calorie in and then like the assumed calories burned and working out six, seven, eight hours a day in the summer. I mean, I was just running for, I don't, I really don't know how I was sustained through all of that, to be honest. So how did you get out of this cycle? And yeah, I, I came across that scripture and it really just breathed a little courage into me to open up to my mom about so much of this. Cause I was so tired. I was so weary. And now I was headed off to college. Mm. I was about to be away from any support system that I had, you know, and forging my way sort of in my own new environment. And that scripture really just compelled a very strange courage out of me. And I opened up to my mom and, you know, she was shocked and, and obviously heartbroken that she had never seen or noticed or, you know, dug deeper to find out. But she also really instilled some beautiful things in me. Um, she got me in with a nutritionist, with, with a counselor. But what she really instilled in me was that if I desired true healing, I had to personally seek the healer. Mm. You know, I wanted these chains to be broken in my life. I had to, it couldn't be a faith by inheritance anymore. It couldn't be walking on my parents' Christian leash. You know, it, it had to become my own faith walk headed off to school. And I had to set my eyes on the one who could heal me and break me free of these things. And so I think she just knew her daughter's personality. I think she knew that I like to rise to a challenge. And so rather than so much coddling and, you know, bemoaning that she never noticed and, you know, making it a very sad situation, she kind of turned it and challenged me in it. Um, and you know, that challenge from someone who loved me met by that comfort who came from a God who loved me really came together to, um, help me crawl out of that. Hmm. Uh, And so I headed off to school and, um, really actually in a a beautiful way, God began to break those chains and, and, you know, moved out of the eating disorder and, you know, moved into this new environment. I don't, I don't think I knew what a faith walk alone was supposed to be like (laughs) or how, how do you suddenly, you know, do this and what's it supposed to be like? And what does it even mean? Like, and God just met me with the simplest truth that it just begins by giving him the glory. And what I mean by that is by taking our eyes off of ourselves and setting our eyes on him. And, you know, when we live in our control issues and our insecurities and, you know, our wants, our desire, our world, I kind of liken it to living in a house of mirrors. All we can see is ourselves, our thoughts, our issues, our struggles, our needs each week, like our responsibilities, our schedules. And so the first thing God called of me in living a, a, a vibrant faith walk with him and taking even the first step of faith was to take my eyes off of myself and to look up, you know, to look to him, towards him, to begin to give him the glory in all things and just begin that practice of shifting the praise, you know, and Mm -hmm. shifting the focus. And 
So I started to do that. And, and it was just amazing early in college, the, the blessings that began to rain down. I mean, I took my, my eyes off of my struggles. I began to give God the glory and just use whatever platform I had to, to praise him. And, um, he just honored that in a really amazing way. And I finished my freshman soccer season. I mean, all American freshman of the year in Louisiana, SEC, this SEC, that, I mean, just accolade after accolade. It had been an amazing season. And what was interesting about that was that it sort of shifted my mentality from, you know, God in a box, church on a checklist, you know, safe, comfortable Christianity. It shifted it to still an incomplete perspective of, Oh, this is what it means to be a Christian. I give God the glory and the blessings rain down. Right, know? right, right. An exchange, an exchange. This is an exchange. Yeah. It's a great transaction. And the mm. more I give to God, the more he gives to me. And mm. so I was growing and learning, but I still had an incomplete understanding of things. And I finished that freshman season just really on cloud nine, kind of untouchable, invincible. I mean, feeling so strong in my faith walk and, you know, just loving this, this life I was leading. And I went home for Christmas break after my freshman year. And one night my dad didn't come home and, um, you know, to make a very long portion of the story short, hours passed and he, he didn't come home and he was such a family man through and through. I mean, he, he was never home later than five thirty, especially when we were home from college. It was like his family was who he longs to get to. And so it was strange. It wasn't like, Oh, he's just gone out, you know, with a buddy or something. We couldn't find him. And his phone was going straight to voicemail. And my mom finally called us down into the formal living room and the best way to describe it is she was just as pale as a ghost and she looked like a marionette, like a marionette doll. Like it was just taking every bit of energy to hold herself together. Like she was almost robotic and we're trying to figure out what's going on. And and she took us back to her bedroom and showed us a love note written right beneath the phone that said, I do love you and had his name signed and a voicemail on the answering machine. That was my father's voice, but it wasn't my daddy. It was scared and empty and just removed. And he simply said he needed to drive around and clear his head and um, that he loved us. And we didn't know what was going on. And my mom didn't have much time to really explain. She just explained there were some financial issues that had come to the surface in the previous couple of days. And that now dad was missing, like he had, he had taken off. And um, you know, I think she knew he was scared because, you know, it was some issues that didn't shine the best light on his ability to, to handle and manage things financially well. And it put us in an, in, in a, a difficult place. Um, it was just tax related with the IRS and stuff. And, um, he, we needed to find him. We needed to find him as he was running and he was overwhelmed. And, um, we fell asleep that night, just cl- I, I was clueless of what to pray. Hmm. You know, it's, it's easy to pray when we are asking for something we really want or it's good or it's a blessing or, you know, any of these things. It's, it's, I think a lot of us can probably relate to being at a point in life where we just don't even know the words that we're supposed to say. It's too, too bizarre, too broken, too challenging of a situation. <laughs> and I fell asleep that night and woke up early the next morning with my mom just sprinting 
screaming, running up the steps, this sheet of paper just crackling in her hands. She's like, get in the car, get in the car, grab your shoes, grab your things, get in the car. And we're, you know, grabbing our jackets and our shoes and we are in the car just flying around town to any place my dad might have frequented or might have been. And I'm just begging my mom to see this sheet of paper that she had. We weren't sure what was going on. And she, you know, wouldn't give it to me, wouldn't give it to me. And then finally just shoved it into the back seat and then said, here, read it. And then please help me. And I, I picked up the sheet of paper and ironed out the creases. And it was a suicide letter from my dad that she had found. It was an email he had sent just summarizing his life in four little paragraphs. Mm. Um, And that was sort of the moment the, the world just kind of turned to molasses. It was like. Hmm. really process everything going on. But we ended up at his office um, and he was an attorney. And so a lot of the police officers in town knew him. And, um, you know, at this point, my mom had found that contacted like suicide hotline police, different people are involved now. He's only been missing a short while, but when you have a suicide letter, things get a little more serious. So there were officers there, so much noise, so much commotion, searching his office, trying to find any clue of where he may be and trying to trace cell phone signals and all of that. And, um, I'll never forget the moment everything just went really quiet and I was in his office, my sister next to me, my mom next to her, just, you know, searching through his paper, anything to try to find any clues. And the three officers walked through the door of his office and they said, ma'am, we found your husband. And we, it was just such a relief. It was overwhelming. Um, But, you know, I just, My thought was like, God, whatever, whatever it is, whatever's going on, whatever is happening here, I've seen that we give you the praise, like that you rain down the blessing. I believe you can fix this situation. I believe you can heal things here. Like we'll take this on. You're sufficient. And then they cleared their throat and said, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, let us clarify. Uh, we found your husband's remains. Hmm. So it was January 3rd, 2009 when my dad uh, put a gun to his heart and pulled the trigger. And it was January 3rd, 2009 that I took off running from God. It is amazing how quickly we can move from praising God until something tips our adversity threshold just enough. If something's too big, too overwhelming, too unexpected, and we go from praising God, calling him sufficient to blaming God and calling him, you know, the one who caused this all or allowed this to happen or, you know, didn't love us enough, didn't see us enough, you know, like wasn't good enough. And I just blamed God. I just took off running into depression, into anxiety, into darkness. You know, I had to return to college about a week and a half after we, we, you know, had my dad's service and, I just ran straight headlong into that college scene because it's amazing at a college university. You can be the most broken you've ever been and indulging in any sin sized piece you can find to fill the God sized hole in your heart. And you look completely average and normal next to every other college kid. Hmm. The things I was doing weren't for the sake of fun partying. They were because I was numbing one of the deepest pains I had ever known but you don't stand out because everyone's doing it, you know, mm-hmm. and it almost looking back now, I'm like, man, how many people around me were numbing things as well? You know, and I didn't even know you don't have eyes for it then mm-hmm. when you're, you're sort of in the midst of it. But that's a whole nother tangent about the college. Oh, scene. my goodness, Mo. 
I know. I know. Sorry. I'm just rambling. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're sharing your testimony. And what I think is powerful for the gal listening who could identify with pieces of your story, maybe she grew up in the church and never took it on as her own. Maybe she's in that place right now where she's seeing it as a transaction, right? She's listening to the God Center Mom podcast. She's a good, she's doing a good girl thing and she's making the transaction and blessings are going to come. And you are reminding us all that if we hold to that transactional view of God, when the bad things happen, we then say, hey, I want a refund. This was not the deal. I thought only good things happened. And if we have that view of a God who even in the hard things is not faithful, it's hard to be faithful in return. It's hard enough to be faithful in return when he has been <laughs> faithful. And and then when the really difficult things happen, yeah, and you're right. I mean, all of us around us numbing in one way or the other, whether it's an eating disorder or whether it's um, going towards, you know, alcohol, drugs, men, uh, some people it's church, <laughs> you know, whatever they're doing to numb um, the pain yeah, if we're not we're not talking about it. So you're in this place and you're just mingling amongst everyone else who's hurting and broken. But I've met you since. So there's got to be there's got to be something that happened to bring you around cuz that wasn't the girl I met in Israel. Yeah, it was um it was about 1 year later. Um I had just been in the throes of depression, anxiety, promiscuity. I mean, any, like I said, any sin size piece I could get my hands on that could numb that pain. Um, I was just in the throes of it in college. And it was almost one year later um, that I was headed home for Thanksgiving break. Uh, So I'd lost my dad in January and now it was November. And um, it had just been the darkest year of my life. And really, really the cry of my heart through that year had become like, God, I don't know if I believe that you're real. I don't think you love me. I don't think you're good. Like, I don't think you're so powerful because why would you have allowed this to happen if you were? And really I came to such a place of brokenness that I understood why my dad did what he did. And I saw it as a viable option for my own life Mm. because it would be so much easier to just not hurt anymore. Um, and people who've struggled through loss or pain know that you just get tired of the pain. It's just exhausting. And, um, the cry of my heart really had been, God, if you're so real, do something, do something, reveal yourself to me somehow. You know what? If you're so real, just wreck my life, just end it because I'm, I'm tired of all of this. And, um, I was at a place of resentment, of hurt, of darkness and, the cry of my heart was wreck my life. And I don't think I realized he would take my prayer quite so literally. <laughs> I was headed home for Thanksgiving break and, and had been stuck in traffic and on the road for quite a while. It was one thirty in the morning at this point, And I'm about a hundred miles from Atlanta, just numb and zoned out and just running really. And that was um, such a time that God chose not to preserve me, not to, you know, sustain me, but to wreck my life and reveal himself to me to save my eternal story. Um, I, I, I lost, I, I lost control of my car that I was driving down the interstate. And the next thing I knew I was in the center median and my wheel is just cranking and jerking. And I'm like, Whoa, Mo, snap out of it. Like get back on the road. This can't be happening. I tried to pull my Jeep back on 
to the interstate and just shot straight across, hit an embankment, flipped my Jeep three times, and landed upside down in a ravine at 1.30 in the morning, completely alone and completely physically broken. I had broken vertebrae in my neck. I damaged mm-hmm. ribs, lungs, liver, face. Well, a whole half of my face was smashed up. And I came to hanging upside down in the Jeep. It had landed upside down with the engine just stripped clean off. Um, and people hear the story and they're like, oh, God, how long is this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> they're like, surely nothing else can go wrong here. Yeah. No, this but is wow. My heart had been do something, do anything, reveal yourself to me. And it was hanging upside down in that Jeep that. I get goosebumps even now. I do this for a living, telling this testimony, and I never, I never can get past this. the The presence of the Holy Spirit hmm. flooded into my Jeep and was so overwhelming; it was almost physically crushing. Hmm. And in an instant, in a breath, God began to just download the realities of the depths of the gospel into my heart, hmm. personalize it to me began to paint the picture of Christ taking the cross, not just to forgive me of my sins, but that he had to take the cross because of my sins. It was my sins that hung him there. And yet still he chose to stay and he hung on that cross and he took that tomb and he rose still to prove that he was greater than death. He was greater than our death, our loss, our pain, greater than our running, greater than the sin we've lived in, greater than the pain and affliction that he brings dead things to life. And what he pressed on my heart was that I needed to choose. Was I going to continue to allow the haphazard winds of life to maybe blow my broken pieces back together? Or was I going to trust him as the master artist, the designer of my soul, the one who first knit me together in my mother's womb? Was I going to trust him to rebuild me into a new creation? And what he pressed on my heart, you know, feels a bit like Paul on the road to Damascus where he just drops him and blinds him and overwhelms him. It's, it's, it's God himself who does the work in this equation. But what he pressed on my heart was this, this was it, that, that I needed to choose. And there was no more lukewarm living of back and forth, up and down roller coaster ride of maybe I believe when it's good, maybe I don't when it's hard, that that he was, he, he didn't take the cross for it to be mocked, that he took the cross for me to know grace and forgiveness and mercy and that he had freedom for me, but I had to step into it. And, um, I chose him. I don't know. If <laughs> I know the other side. I'm like, over, out, I'm here listening with my eyes closed, my arms outstretched. Like this is church. This is worship. I mean, what you just said is worship. I have my Holy Spirit goosebumps. I am just, it's, that's when the truth comes when it's all about us. Like you were saying that transaction of, yeah, we're giving him glory. I'm doing all the work. God, look at me doing the work. When you're hanging upside down, completely unable, even in your physical, the physical was such an important part of your story. Yeah. That's where a lot of your battle was happening. Then the glory and the hard. And then for you to be completely physically unable to do anything, just hanging upside down to feel the fullness of the gospel in that moment is so powerful. Mo, that's the spiritual. That's the things we can't see. That's the work that he does outside of us. That's not based on us. Yeah. 
beyond our yucky that we bring, like you said, beyond the sin that we bring in that transaction. Yeah. He still redeems it. It it resuscitates us and brings us to life. Mm -hmm. We don't just go from, from bad people that are maybe, you know, changed from our, our sinful actions. We go from death to life Mm -hmm. in Christ. He saves us from the brink of hell itself and redeems us for an eternity with him by his grace alone. And it was so insane because it was in those moments, which I couldn't even tell you, I was in and out of consciousness, even some. So it wasn't like I could even tell you so much the time frame of all of this, but it felt instantaneous that he reached into my heart and began to just scribe his truth on it. I suddenly knew scripture I had never even heard before. I knew deep, like, like, theological concepts. I had never paid it to, no one had ever broken that down for me before. Mm. We think sometimes it takes our amazing works to learn and become, you know, these amazing believers. But the truth of the matter is that, yes, it's incredible to grow. It's incredible to learn my, the rest of my life, the rest of my days, I will seek his wisdom and, and pray for truth to be written more and more on my heart. But all it takes for God in a moment of saving grace is a whisper. And our hearts can go from death to life, from broken to healed and redeemed, from hurting to completely overflowing with the goodness of God who sees us in our mess, sees us in our brokenness, and instead breathes us to a place of boldness, to be bold. And and I, you know, I, I had some physical recovery after that accident. Yeah. I was, um, there was a while I had to withdraw from school for the end of semester um, and just recover at home in Georgia. And then obviously went back to university and, um, you know, healed and recovered and kept playing by the grace of God. But, um, you know, it, it, it was, it was just, it was just transformational. And, um, there hasn't been a day of my life. Sure. There's still the roller coaster. Goodness. You could be walking with Jesus for <laughs> And still sometimes just not feel it that much and other times be on fire, you know, but there is a consistency that is never changing and never failing when you know a God who is never changing and never failing. And so life's still a roller coaster ride. But from that day in that Jeep forward, it's been a roller coaster ride where my seatbelt is like the anchoring truth, (laughs) Jesus Christ. And I know I'm not flying off that roller coaster car like I'll, I'll be along for the ride. The battles will still wage, you know, the, the struggles will still come, but I have divine hope in, in the valley that there is a God with me who sees me, knows me, loves me, has called me out as his own and is with me and for me moving forward. And that I can surrender my life to that and, and be obedient to his guidance the rest of my days. And I just took all the time telling my story. And so we're going to be able to talk. For- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking this is my favorite. Uh, this is my favorite. I am so thankful. You are such an anointed speaker of truth. So um, every time you would get up in front of our bus with the microphone and just drop some awesomeness, uh, you spoke right before my major Jesus moment at the Garden of Gethsemane. And so... I do believe God has anointed you that your journey is not wasted. You have written it down for others to read and they are resonating with it. If y'all, I mean, can't you see why I brought Mo on? Go read her book. 
uh, wreck my life. And then now we're going to talk about Israel. Um, I know for you, when we were all met in the hotel dinner, the awkward dinner where, where Heather cried, the awkward dinner, um, you shared like that you just wanted to know more deeply Jesus, like yeah. walk where he walked and see all the things that he spoke of and taught on. Uh, what was most impactful for you? I mean, it's, it's hard for me if I had to answer that question, but is there something that rises to the surface when you think about our time in Israel? There is. Yeah. So what was amazing for me about Israel, and this is where my husband becomes such a beautiful balance in my life too, is, um, he is, I am, I, I call it like the head and the heart, um, the grace and the knowledge. I am like, a, because of of my transformational experience because of the Christ I know, because God has always breathed truth to my heart. I am a grace heart driven person and I get grace and I get mercy and I get, you know, the, the emotion, the heart, the, the transformation of it all. But I struggle sometimes in continuing then to equip myself with the head knowledge, the, the truth of, of scripture, you know, the details of scripture, the, the wisdom that is poured out through scripture time and time again. And just even understanding what Jesus's life looked like when he was actually a human bound right. here on earth by the same things we're walking in. And so my husband is so amazing in that area. He's more of the head. He's more of the, you know, historical. He's more of the place and relevance and significance because God speaks through all of those things too. And so Israel was this amazing opportunity to really dive headfirst into um, the immersion of that knowledge and then of that experience and then seeing things, being able to understand scripture better because I can tie my heart and my memories to the places Jesus actually was. If that makes sense. I just think as millennials, a lot of times we struggle to equip ourselves with the head knowledge that sustains us when the heart knowledge is weary and fades because of life circumstances. But when you have, you know, head knowledgeable proof there that can root you sometimes when your heart wanders. Hmm. Um, so anyways, I was excited for that. And, and I mean, to answer what was the most impactful is like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> but, Did you have a favorite place or I, yeah, yeah, I okay. think the, the a memory that stands out to me the most was the Garden of Gethsemane, just like uh, you talked about. But also, we went to the Shepherd's Field um, mm. in Bethlehem, which was over in the West Bank. We actually crossed into the Palestinian region. Um, you know this. I'm just telling the, the listeners. Please tell the listeners. Yes, I know. I was hoping this would be one, something you brought up. So good. Yes. Yeah, we, we crossed into the Palestinian region. That's actually where Bethlehem is in the West Bank area. And we got the opportunity to go to the shepherd's field. Um, and this was just transformational knowledge for me. Um, there were so many things that are significant about that area. But one thing we got to do was step into, um, not the cave Jesus was born in, but a cave right there in the shepherd's field. And, you know, I've always had in my mind this picture of the Christmas story. We, like, commercialize and Americanize it, and, and there's the Christmas story. And we picture, you know, this manger, this barn almost, and these placid animals all circled around. <laughs> this is just born into the arms of a doting mother, and the father is there. And I started talking to the, the guide in the Palestinian region, and just asking actually about more of the cultural context of what this looked like. Cause I was like, there's no manger around here. And he said, in truth, 
what would have happened in those times? And, and scripture really backs this. We've, we've created sort of an image in our minds that isn't actually word for word in scripture, but shepherds used caves. If you looked at the shepherd's field, there were caves all over the place, just natural caves. And that is where they would keep their animals at night. When you tuck into the cave in the back of the cave, it stays cool in the summer and it stays warm in the, in the winter, in the winter months. And so the shepherds would, would, um, you know, guide their animals into the back of the cave for safekeeping in the night. They would sleep towards the front of the caves and, that was where animals were kept. And so there's just so much to even break down here. But when Mary and Joseph would have come to Bethlehem, first off, it would have been packed because everyone was coming for the census. And so, you know, we just hear, oh, there's no room in the inn. Well, in truth, there probably wasn't room in the inn um, because it would have been so crowded. But additionally, a woman, a Jewish woman, is considered unclean for 40 days after giving birth because of the blood, because of, you know, all of that type of thing. A Jewish woman is actually considered unclean. And so even if there had been room in an inn, first off, they probably couldn't have afforded it for 40 days that they would have needed it. And that would have been um uh, an innkeeper would have been a little weary to bring a woman in that would have made the place basically unclean by birthing a child. Mm. So then maybe, you know, the, the guide was saying maybe Joseph had some extended family that they, they might have gone to their home and said, do you have a place for us to stay? You know, she's about to give birth. Well, that would have been very expensive for that family to care for them for the 40 day window that Mary would have needed. Um, where, where really a Jewish woman has to stay in seclusion for the most part, she, she's unclean. And so what likely happened is that an extended family member or someone along the way said, um, you can use my cave with my animals. Like you can, you can birth it there, but we can't financially support like for you to be in our home and whatnot. So the savior of the world would have been born in a cave. And we walked into this. It was one of the most emotional experiences to me also because I'm pregnant and everything's emotional right now. (laughs) Cave. And what would have happened in this place is that Joseph himself wouldn't have even been able to help Mary in childbirth because if he had touched the blood, he would have been considered unclean. So perhaps some shepherd wives might have come and helped Mary, but most likely, and understand contextually too, Mary was probably around 14 years old. Most likely a 14, 15-year-old girl would have huddled in the back of a cave filled with animals that would have had, you know, a manger where the animal trough where they would have eaten that scriptural right there. But she would have birthed a human being basically on her own, a teenage girl in the back of a cave would have birthed the savior of our world. And for 40 days, even people, I mean, Joseph, others would have just kind of even tossed her food because they wouldn't have wanted to come near because she was still considered unclean. And I birthed a 10.1 pound baby naturally. <laughs> you get a lot of mad props for that. That's good. Yeah, That's and good. I needed to be catered to yeah. immediately following for like the next three months. Mm. But Mary and her faithfulness and obedience carried a bigger task than she ever knew. Um, 
would have been shunned. It would have been embarrassing to have gone. They weren't wed yet. And so for them to even show up and, and her be so far along in pregnancy, there was a shame there. Then she's in a cave amongst livestock, not a beautiful manger scene with, you know, well-cleaned hay. She births Jesus Christ in a cave as a young teen, most likely alone. And there, the savior of our universe was born in the ultimate place of humility. And I was just completely overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the faithfulness and the diligence of Mary to do that, but not to exalt her, to humanize her. She's just like me and you. Right. And there God chooses to bring his son, fully God and fully man to life on earth where nobody would have suspected, nobody would have been looking, nothing glamorous, nothing royal, nothing that is any earthly, you know, savior of a people group politically. It's a baby and a teenage girl in a cave. Mm -hmm. And, And that's the one who saved us all on the cross. And I just thought it was so beautiful to learn about the realities and the cultural context there, the Jewish customs of uncleanliness, you know, the time after birth, what Mary persevered through. Um, to bring to life this this God-sized commissioning that, that she was given by a king. And mm. it was amazing. It was the coolest part of the trip for me. God-centered mom right there. That's it. Right there, the mom story. We all can identify with a, uh, with a birth story. And, man, yeah, and you're standing there pregnant, and I'm thinking, oh, and, you know, you can identify even more, like— and there's something in my memory that's blocked out the whole labor and delivery aspects of right. having kids, but you're, it's pretty fresh and new for you and you're in the midst of doing it again. And so I think, um, to be able, like you said, to connect with the human aspect of the Bible that we read some, uh, so often we can have such faith in the God aspects, but the, the human parts that they had the same struggles we do and yet made yeah. the choices that they did. And, um, yeah, it kind of, it changes the game. We can't read the Bible the same. Can't, yeah. we can't. Oh, it's, just, it's overwhelming in it, the best kind of way. I think every single believer should, should work their hardest to get to Israel at some point in their life. Um, it's just, it's just faith changing. And honestly, culturally, it is so enhancing, mm-hmm. um, to read the Bible, to look at the maps and to culturally understand the Jewish customs, the Jewish world that Jesus himself grew up in. I've been reading through the gospel of Mark now, and it puts in such a different light understanding what he was navigating through and how he was still respecting it and honoring it, but also bringing this new law. Um, It it helps make sense, not to replace it, but to fulfill it. You know, It, it helps make sense the Pharisees, the Sadducees, when you understand even the, you know, political positioning of them and the economic, you know, motives behind some of those things, it just makes it all make so much more sense. And it's so faith affirming. So every single believer should, should try to <laughs> Israel. And yeah. so sweet that you got to go with your husband. Um, I think you'd shared with us that y'all, there's something about your honeymoon and wanting to take a trip. Maybe it was because you had your daughter. I don't know. You all had been wanting to take a trip together and that this was like such a gift to get to go. We had. Israel was big time on our bucket list. Um, But then six months into getting married, we got pregnant. And financially, we were like, "Ah, I guess not. (laughs) I guess we'll go to Israel when we're 40. Um, Hey, like me. It's not a bad thing. (laughs) Israel when you're 40. Or you can do what Mo and Jeremiah did. Yeah. <laughs> it was just special. It was it was an amazing experience. And I'm just so grateful to Israel Collective and just enjoyed experiencing it with 
everyone else in our group too. I mean, you obviously included, it was such an amazing mix of people. Um, and that enhanced the trip too. So I don't know how we could ever duplicate that trying to go back on our own or anything mm. like that. It was, it was just really unique. It was a pretty special anointed time with, mm. with neat people. Barnabas included, who knows what he said in his podcast. <laughs> you have to go listen. You have to go listen. Well, thank you, Mo, for coming on today. What a treat to hear your story. I mean, not just a treat. Treat's not a good enough word. It was a blessing and a worshipful experience to hear your testimony. Uh, I have a really strong feeling that um, you ministered to many women today and emboldened our faith um, to go from broken to bold, to embrace that boldness. And that is available through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So thank you so, so much. And I'm excited for this new baby. I'm thankful to hear good, healthy news about the baby and yeah, you're almost there halfway. And aren't you working on another book? Can we talk about it or not? I am. Yeah. I'm okay. wrapping up. Um, my second manuscript is due um, July 1st and it is called Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot. Mm-hmm. And, um, hit it. Just hit it right on the head right there. Scandalous. Yeah. Not, not scandalous in a bad way. It's just, it's been a tough one to write because it's bearing a lot of my sexual testimony, um, which was just as broken to bold. Um, and it's also just really hitting a lot of topics, not so much calling out the church, um, but, but digging to the deeper why of things, Mm. why the heart conditions of why, you know, we have such symptomatic responses to things sexually Mm. and, why our culture is, you know, why it's just trying to so desperately fill the insatiable lust of the lost. You know, it's, it just, it sort of tackles things head on and it's, it's things that I can connect with through my testimony. There's so many sexual topics. It would be impossible to try to write on them all. So it's the ones that, that hit my testimony too. But, um, you're bold girl. You're going after it. I think you're amazing. Do it. Yeah, we're we're cheering you on. Che- when does that come out? Thank you. It'll come out in spring of 2018. Um, but I got to finish writing it first <laughs> on the words. So prayers appreciate. <laughs> we will. We will. We'll pray. That mommy brain that shrinks when you're pregnant. That's not helping. It's real. Why did I look while I was pregnant? Ugh. That's so good. All right. Well, thank you, Mo. I hope you have just a great rest of your week. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. What a powerful testimony. And I know you listening, you have a powerful testimony. And maybe you've never thought about it before. Maybe you've never written it down. And viewing this podcast somewhat as a discipleship journey, you and I in our faith in God and thinking through um, what he's done for us and what we believe about him, maybe it's time to journal the places you've come from. Maybe the wounded places, the broken places, maybe the wrong theologies you've held at different parts of your journey, and what God has done to bring you to the place you are today. I kind of feel like each of us needs to, at some point, get that written down, maybe to a page that we could communicate with someone else that we just bump into, because you never know how your testimony, your pain, where God's taken you from, can minister to someone else. Speaking of ministering, if your story includes an eating disorder, 
I just want to encourage you that my goal is to have another episode come out uh, maybe later this summer with a counselor and a friend who has um, journeyed through the struggle of an eating disorder. And um, I will be putting a call out for questions on Instagram and Facebook. So keep a lookout. And if you aren't following me over on Instagram or Facebook, you know you can find me at God Center Mom, super creative. Always there um, talking about the show or sharing things I love. So you can find me there and um, just know that you're not alone. That is a theme that God is just repeating um, in my heart for you listening. Um, I know you are you may be in a room by yourself right now, but just so you know, I had to look at numbers the other day. I don't like to look at numbers because it just makes me feel yucky. But there, in a given month, there are 200,000 downloads of this podcast. You are not alone. There are moms out there who desire to know God better. There are moms out there wanting to do a better job. There are dads listening, like I, like I said last week, um, all over the world. Shout out to every one of you all over the world that are tuning in today. And in your struggle, uh, whether your story also includes um, suicide of a, of a loved one, uh, that's t- that is tough. That is tough to recover from the shock and the loss. Uh, maybe this week I'll post um, one of my favorite resources. I think we mentioned it in my conversation with Stacy Thacker about how does a mom grieve, um, but it's about when someone you love dies suddenly. So you can check out that. Um, again, follow me over at Instagram and Facebook, but just know that you are not alone. Others uh, are on this journey with you and God is forever right by your side. If you're a believer in Jesus, he has promised that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. So you have that power in you. Be strong, mama. You're doing an awesome, amazing job. God sees everything you're doing and he says it is good. Love those people well. I need that message for myself today, too. All right. Talk soon. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the God-Centered Mom podcast. If you're looking for more resources on how to replace me with he, go to GodCenteredMom.com. That's where you'll also find show notes with any links mentioned by our guest. I want you to really understand and know that God is just as present while you are washing dishes at your kitchen sink as while you are worshiping him in a church pew. He sees your service to your family and he is pleased. As it says in Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Have a great day.